do 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 do. I love that the DVD had the eight bit music on it. Yeah, on the menu. it's a nice touch. It, it just kind of really sets the tone for well, not Nothing. the movie you're about to watch. Correct. Yeah. Da 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 da. Uh, That's probably the more appropriate drop. Yeah, it honestly makes way more sense. Did you guys know that Alan Silvestri did the score for this movie? I saw that. I did yeah, see that. Did you know that going in? I was not prepared for that. I think yeah. I saw it in passing, but I wasn't connecting dots. It was a, a shocking thing to learn about this forgotten film. Yes. There's a lot of interesting things about this forgotten film. <laughs> yeah, like Lance Henrik's showing, Henriksen showing up for, what, all of one scene? That's awesome, though. You know, I... I Remember, I, I sent you guys a quote from the Wikipedia about how Toad could have been played by Tom Waits. I yes. want that. Which would have been a much so more interesting much. film. Oh, it's so bad. And I was just picturing Waits in that role when Toad shows up. With that haircut. Yeah. yeah. That incredible haircut that is still part of uh, Lizard Him's uh, scale <laughs> pattern. Right? Oh, my God. This movie. Uh, what do you guys think about the uh, concept of canceling things? Uh, we got we so we had a Twitter user a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, was very afraid we were going to cancel Wayne's World. Uh, not afraid, was mad at the prospect of us canceling Wayne's World uh, because we asked uh, the question in the tweet: Can a character be uh, so wholesome that their horniness is unoffensive? Mm. Um, and I, I don't I don't think we've ever canceled anything on the show, and I'm including Chinatown from a few weeks ago. No, well, we're still pretty praising. I mean, it's mostly Roman Polanski who's yeah. We cancel him. Well, I think we're we're canceling the idea of canonizing things that are gross. Like yeah. you right. can still watch them. You should still talk about them. We are not the arbiters of uh, of the culture. Just I think you know. I, think, I mean, Wayne's World is definitely a different time for sure. And you have to look at it through that lens. I know there was uh, there was that. I didn't even read it, but I saw enough hate tweets and responses to the uh, the Heather's hot take that dropped. Mm. Where I guess some some millennial watched Heather's and completely took the wrong ideas from it and called it problematic and yeah you know if it came out today we could probably have that discussion but yeah yeah the late I, 80s early 90s were a completely different time and uh, cultural was different i think we talked about that when we talked about heather's yeah i think we, yeah, we, did, yeah. we tried to do a good job of being like look there's this shit does not I work mean, anymore yeah, there's we, a reason the the tv version of this that was tried to that tried to be contemporary failed i mean realistically i should probably cancel most of mgm's productions from them the 30s to the 50s. Oh yeah, all of Bob Fosse's movies probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've seen the I've seen the trailers for for that TV show. And I think we've long kind of argued that if you're not comfortable watching something, hey, yeah, but yeah. you know, different strokes, different folks. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just because we uh, come down very hard against something like morally speaking, that means cancel. Yeah, do whatever you want, dude. I don't, I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird thing to think about. Uh, the 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 idea that a take on something has to be like some sort of a uh, hammer of definitive opinion. I tell you, we're not going to be canceling the Super Mario Brothers. No, no we, we are, are not. not. Welcome wow. again to the Good Trash and Honor Cast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film says course. This week's film is the Super Mario Bros. movie, like the Warner Bros. Yes. Uh, abbreviated in the same sort of way. And uh, it's a good time. And we're going to be talking about this film, but let's introduce ourselves. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. We're back. And if you see the cops, you better warn us Super Mario Bros. That I'm glad we got that infinity on the back. Yeah, do we want to break kayfabe real quick and uh, thank uh, thank our, our guest hosts last week for getting us out of Endgame or whatever's going to happen in a couple weeks? Yeah, they uh, they defeated Thanos, and uh, we have rematerialized. Which and is good. 
Yeah. It was very nice of them to uh, hold the port down for us while we were gone. They did uh, great work in the multiverse. Uh, yeah. Special thanks to Kirsten Thurkelson, Aaron Demos, and uh, the very wonderful Ag- Alexandra Bohannon for holding down the ship for us. Uh, they, they told you where you can find the things they make on the internet at the end of last show, but... Uh, Aaron does a podcast called uh, Bad Girls Die First. Kirsten uh, writes stuff for our website uh, at goodtrashmedia.com. She does the Frival Film column and has guest hosted a bunch. And Alexandra Bohannon does soundtrack over at thecinematropolis.com. So, yeah, go check out their stuff, and thanks again for hosting last week. You guys are awesome. It was nice. Have a week off. It was very good. I enjoyed it. So, uh, in case you're tuning into this show for the very first time, though, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and we are not going to run away from spoilers at all, ever. So, uh, if you have not seen this 20-year-old movie... Um, almost 30. Almost Very close. Golly. Math is hard. Anyway, uh, it's, it's an old movie, so it's been around for a minute, and... It's technically uh, classic. Turns out, um, your princess is in another castle, and uh, we're going to talk all about that kind of stuff, so... Uh, you have now been warned, but let's go ahead and begin with our synopsis. Let's hear that from uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, please. Roughly 65 million years ago, a meteorite fell to Earth, destroying life as we knew it. But what if, in its impact, the meteorite created a parallel universe where humans evolved from lizards? In this world, the evil Koopa, played by Dennis Hopper, seizes control of Dino Hatton, a parallel of Earth Prime's New York City. Koopa wants to rejoin the two worlds and reign supreme over the lizard men and Earth's population. But to succeed, he needs the remaining fragment of meteorite and the abandoned Princess Daisy, Samantha Mathis, who was left on Earth Prime as a child uninformed of her true heritage. Koopa's henchman slash cousin Spike and Izzy travel to Earth Prime to kidnap Daisy. All the while, Daisy meets Luigi, played by John Leguizamo, and the two strike up a relationship. After being kidnapped, Luigi and his brother, Mario Mario, played by Bob Hoskins, follow after to save the princess and defeat Koopa. That I've seen this movie, and that all sounded like word salad. Yes. It just sounded like your brain stopped working, and you're, you were just throwing random things out. This movie makes no sense. It's incredible. Not not a bit. Not <laughs> nary a bit. So, well, there you go, dear listener. That's the show. Let's let's review it really quick and uh, talk about whether we like it or not. Hey, Arthur, do you like the Super Mario Bros? I kind of do. It is a fascinating cultural artifact that I've kind of been like... I mean, it's become the butt of all of the jokes. It is kind of the pinnacle of not what not to do in video game adaptation, even though there's not a, this is what you do in video game adaptation, because nobody has got it right after 30 years. But it is fascinating. I, I, I think it honestly is a good adaptation when, when you really dive into upholding the spirit of a work wherein two plumbers try to save a princess in an alternate reality. I mean, it's all there. There are dumb soldiers. There are lizard monsters. You got the bombs. You got tubes spitting you, you out got and other fungal of... things that help you. Oh my god, it's so good! I really had hoped they would eat one and grow. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, yes, um, or have hallucinations. Either one. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but then it just becomes fast times at or uh, uh, not fast times. Um, what's that stupid movie with Depp? The Fear and Loathing oh, in Las Vegas. Fear, Fear and Loathing in the Mushroom Kingdom. Yes, yeah. that's what yes. it becomes. And uh, but yeah, I, I actually. Let me tell you, the script is rough, but Leguizamo and Hoskins, Hopper, everybody is 100% into delivering this material and make it work and sell it. Which is incredible because Hoskins and Leguizamo were drunk for most of the production of this movie. They they just are 
having a blast. They're having a great time. Dennis Hopper is this OCD lizard king is a treat. And the movie mostly looks pretty good for a low-budget 93 action movie. Yoshi looks great. And I know a lot of the crew from uh, the puppeteers and stuff from uh, Jurassic Park had come over and hung out. And we were like, hey, you guys should come help us out at some point. No kidding. Or something along those lines. So, I mean. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it does look really good. And, I mean, relying heavily on a lot of those practical effects and the smaller sets really works. Some of that, you know, background projection when they're falling through dimensions and stuff doesn't work as well. But for a movie from that time period, and I, I think that was one of the things mostly praised when this was released was the look of the film. And I think, yeah, it holds up. Um, cast is a blast. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, what do you do with this property? Any of the games? I mean, there's not really a, a narrative there. I mean, you save the princess from the castle. That's it. You catch some stars. You blast some uh, goo with a water cannon. Depends on the game. You play tennis. Sometimes you're a doctor. There's no plot to speak of, though, yeah. But, I mean, this is a children's movie, and I think it's mostly effective. Now, that being said, when I was eight, six, however old I was when I watched this for the first time, I probably was very confused as to why there weren't bricks being crashed and dinosaurs actually walking around. But there's that great homage when they have the egg crates. Yeah. They go through the roof. It's, I love it. They have their little jumper boots, which is like a fun, that's a power-up. Yeah, that's a video game thing. There are power-ups in video games. Yeah, I. Uh, you know what? I, uh, I would go to bat for this movie. So uh, maybe one thumb up. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like the Super Mario Brothers movie? I have so many feelings about the Super Mario Brothers movie. The, this is a film, Arthur, you, you called it a children's film. I don't know who this movie's for. Uh, it, it was definitely made by people who had never, who, who either had never played a game or didn't give a shit. And in either case, cool. Uh, there, there is something incredible about saying, you can't turn a video game into a movie. So we'll just make a movie that kind of references a game that people know about. It is an insane thing to do, and I love it. And the fact that it doesn't happen anymore is is criminal. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Arthur. It is a cultural artifact. Nobody would make this movie anymore because as soon as nerds found out their movie wasn't like their precious game, they would destroy it. I mean, look look at all the, the trouble that surrounded the, the uh, production of this damn Sonic movie. They can't even advertise it without half the internet going, what is this monstrosity? And the other half of the internet going, show it show it to me naked. It's, it's insane uh, what goes on around the production of a video game movie. And you just, the internet has kind of stopped the ability for an insane project like this to kind of happen in the shadows a little bit without the public really knowing what they're getting into until trailers start dropping. Uh, it's, it is just a bizarre film and I absolutely agree, Arthur. I think that's what makes it a good adaptation. And obviously we'll talk about that a lot when we get to analysis probably, but it, it is very much its own thing. There is no other movie like this. And, uh, Look, you see enough movies in your lifetime, you get to a point where anything that has novelty gets to be what you actually want to watch. And uh, I was shocked at how much fun I had at this movie that is bad, is not good. It doesn't make any sense. That exposition that Arthur started the synopsis with is how the movie opens. Just just a bad 16-bit maybe cartoon that's an exposition dump. Weird way to start a movie. I wouldn't start a movie that way. But I also didn't make this. And... uh I'm a schmuck for not having made it. Uh, better people than me made this crazy, insane movie. Uh, yeah, it's it's fun, and I cannot wait to try and find some some deep meaning behind it. You know, I haven't been to Manhattan in a couple weeks, so it may have just not 
changed a little on me. And I love that line and this sort of so dystopian funny. world uh, that this movie has. And so, yeah, I think this is fun. I, I really do. I think it's a blast and a way of looking at the world uh, and a way of uh, talking about a video game, which is, again, as you guys have said, really, really thin on plot. And so what do you do? You just make something Looney Tunes. And that's what they did. And I'm all for this fever dream. And yes, d- does it make sense? Do you devolve into fungus? No, you don't. That's another kingdom. That's not how evolution works. Uh, so that no, but I don't care. That that somehow you would be part of plant life? No, of course not. But whatever. Um, Goombas. Give me Goombas who dance when the elevator music plays. So good. It's a great sequence. It's an incredible... Jurassic Park doesn't have dinosaurs dancing together. No. John Leguizamo slowly orchestrating this, like, 18-piece dance number is great. So incredible. I love it. I love it. The, you know, and there's enough little like uh, fan servicey bits when they finally find their uniforms, which are very 90s. Oh my gosh. They kind of look great on screen, though. Yeah, they do. They look great. They pop. You know, and so they're doing all the things right. Uh, it's it's it is what it is, and I am not mad about it at all. So I'm a fan, and I am glad that we uh, were assigned. W- w- I guess we can also pull back the veil on this. Uh, we allowed the ladies to pick us a movie and not tell us what it was going to be. Yeah, we had nothing to do with that uh, that decision. I'm very glad it happened, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, jokes on you, ladies. We like it. I, I think Kirsten was hoping we would like it. Uh, Kirsten is a huge defender of this fa- this film, ah. and I get I get it. Uh, I get why she bought it. It's never streaming anywhere. No. And I know it has a huge cult following now. I know there's a lot of defenders of this film. And, and I, I, I was reading something that I think uh, there's a, a group like a, of supporters who are working on like a 4K restoration of this because that's nice. how much they love it. And they're trying to get it you know, done, which is really cool. I'm all about it. All right, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our initial thoughts about that there movie. Uh, we're going to now expand the syllabus um, with movies or articles or other things, perhaps video games, and uh, talk about that. So, Arthur, how would you expand the syllabus if you were teaching a subclass in which you assigned the Super Mario Brothers movie? Yeah, so earlier this week, I shared an article uh, on Twitter uh, and I think on Facebook called Why Can't Hollywood Make a Good Video Game Movie by Shelley Tan. Uh, it's from the Washington Post. Uh, and, and it's a really cool article because to make its points, it's designed like a little 8-bit video game. Oh, I love that. Where nice. you scroll through and you make choices to decide how you're going to write your Hollywood video game adaptation. And there are no right answers, and it forces its points that way. And it's just a cool little thing to, to kind of, I guess, play through. Um, if nothing else, you have lives. Uh, you travel through this little world with portals. Um, and it's a cool uh, think pieces analysis. have gone interactive. Yeah, it's from last year, from 2018. So it's it's just a really fun, interactive, you know, article. Uh, so partially just the novelty of this article is cool, but it also makes some really good points about where Hollywood has m- missed the mark on trying to adapt video games. Do you go simplistic, or do they try to pick complicated plots like Assassin's Creed, which uh, she names drop name drops here? Um, and they can't find that balance. And so, you know, like I, I referenced earlier, it's been almost 30 years since Super Mario Brothers. We haven't got a, I, I think it references in here um, that there's maybe one or two video game adaptations that have landed above 50% on the tomato meter. Mm. Just critically, they can't land. And like Dalton mentioned, I mean, nowadays, if you don't have the the, the right service, the, the nerds attack. Yeah, uh, and defend their their gates, and uh, 
it's hard for anybody to break through that. So uh, I definitely go give that a read. It's really fun to go through uh, and see how it all plays out. Uh, the other thing I would say is watch the best video game movie, which is Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Nice. Which captures the essence of gaming and transposes that into a cinematic realm. And I think it really hits the mark of capturing both spirits and, and, and having all these fun nods. Obviously the Zelda music, we've got power coins. He's got to collect as he goes through to defeat the bosses of the, of the game. He has to get another life. Yeah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and I think the thing that's so cool about that one, Arthur, is it finds a way to take those mechanics and make them plot and character driven. Yeah, and, and it just it works on another level. You know, we we talked about it a long time ago here on the show, and and uh, we all really enjoy that movie and think highly of it. I think, um, but yeah, the, the way it incorporates gaming tropes into a cinematic world, uh, you know, which is really interesting. And, and I would even say maybe go watch something we talked about it a long time ago. But Lockout or Dread or something like that, which really incorporates those video game tropes and, and kind of parlays them into a cinematic realm where you got to gun down all the baddies and you got to fight the bosses and get to the top of the tower and, and, and win. Um, it's funny to see how much, you know, we think a lot about how much cinema has influenced video games and then the very cinematic drive that they take now. You think of something like The New God of War. Uh, which is designed as a one single take that follows you as you play through this game, um, which is very artistic cinematic storytelling trope. Um, uh, but we don't often think as much about how video games have kind of impacted cinema, I think. And we see it a lot more, I think, with action films um, where those things are prevalent. But uh, it, it's a fun discourse, I think, between those two mediums of, of video game production and, and cinema. Uh, and so those would be some of my reference points. I think this for uh, for a class on on the Super Mario Brothers 101. Uh, that would be my uh, reading material. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? How would you expand the syllabus? Well, I, I think Arthur makes some great points, and I assume that article makes similar points. Uh, but uh, I'm not the first one to say this, and again, I'm sure the article makes this broader point. But I think part of the difficulty here is most video games, especially the huge hits that people go. Uh, that that makes studio executives go, hmm, somebody might pay to see this in a theater. Uh, most of those video games are riffs on cinema plots. And I, I think that that's why, as Arthur mentioned, we focus so much on how cinema influences video games. Uh, be, because uh, what every film that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, Resident Evil, uh, is based on the game Resident Evil, which is heavily influenced by George Romero's work. Uh, I mean, that's the first off the top of the dome. The first bit of syllabus for my class, Mortal Kombat, also from 1993, is hell, just owes a huge debt to uh, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's just the plot of Mortal Kombat, is the plot of Enter the Dragon, more or less. And, and I think that is a huge part of the problem, is at the end of the day, a lot of these video game movies end up being loose retreads of films that inspired the video games that then inspired the movies. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky cycle to get stuck in. Um, but I, I think the best way to try and engage these questions is, as Arthur mentioned, like, let's look at when it works. And I think, uh, uh, is it 93 or 94 that Mortal Kombat comes? Actually, it's 95, I think. No, uh, I don't know. It's a little bit later, yeah. But 95 is Mortal Kombat, I think, does the exact opposite thing that uh, Super Mario Brothers does. It's also bad. It's also fun. And instead of being nothing like the video game it's uh, it's based on, it's 
a lot like the video game it's based on, uh, minus the, the graphic violence, which is probably the right choice to make in a film format, although, you know. I'm, I'm all about look, it. Look, I'll go see anything, man. You know that. Uh, but, but I think uh, th- that film does a really great job of kind of taking the iconography of its of the original work, trying to transpose it into film, trying to carry uh, a tone that is both hilariously uh, winking and also extremely self-serious, which I think that's a, a big selling point of those video games, uh, that, that franchise, rather. So again, I, I think Mortal Kombat from 95 is a great place to start to just kind of look at another example of of what's going on in the early 90s, these very first attempts to uh, make that video game to screen adaptation. I just think it's an interesting counterpoint. Uh, Again, also bad, also a ton of fun to watch. Uh, Next up, let's take a look at Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Another film that says, ah, thank you for this intellectual property. I'm going to throw out all the things that I'm not interested in whatsoever and just have fun with the stuff that I think is cool. Um, and sometimes that's the best way to ad- adapt a property that's not yours. If you're playing with an existing IP, sometimes you just got to say, what in here is interesting? Uh, what in here helps me look at the questions I want to play with? And also, how do I disregard things that nerds care about? Which is always a funny thing to do. Sometimes people like it. Sometimes people don't. Uh, trying to guess what people are going to get upset about is a fool's errand. Uh, just make your damn movie and make it the movie that you want to make. And I think Batman Begins and uh, Super Mario Brothers share that that uh, DNA of just going, well, we can't please all the people. Let's get wild. Uh, speaking of getting wild, this this movie throws so many tones together and so many different production designs and visual influences. Uh, I got to recommend something I just started getting into. It is the anime JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I, speaking of bizarre adventures, it's weird that I'm recommending anime on this show. I know I got mm-hmm. a lot of mileage out of that bit of me thinking all anime is trash. Well, it turns out some of them are good. I just fine. I, I admit it. Anime's good. Would you say they're good trash? I would say they're good trash, Arthur. And uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is the the finest and most delicious trash. Uh, I made Dustin watch a little bit of it with me the other day. I was day. a fan. Yeah, it's. Uh, our friend of the show and uh, co-host of the Praise Down, Heath Huffman, says it's Lord Byron uh, anime. Um, Alex Sanchez also has some very good bits that I cannot remember explaining what it is. I'm, I'm dropping the ball here, unfortunately. But both of them, uh, shameless plug, go watch the Praise Down or listen to the Praise Down. Both of them highly recommended it to me. And yeah, it finds a way to take this gothic English lit tone and like filter it through the anime uh, tone meter and it just turns into something way different and way sillier and way wackier. And again, I think that Japanese uh, artists taking this European art and doing something different and unique that's very much of their own culture uh, is a really cool move. And I think a Hollywood studio taking a Japanese video game and putting it through the machine that is early 90s uh, Hollywood is an equally interesting exercise in how a culture and a medium removed will completely alter what a story looks like i just think it's it's an an interesting thing that we we don't get very many examples of i would say outside of uh the crossover between samurai films and westerns that we talked a lot about earlier this year in our western marathon i think that's the the best example of it um but i I think these are weirder funner examples of it to to pair with each other Uh, i I think that's where we're going to end the syllabus i had some other ideas but i'm feeling good with what we've got it's a lot of homework dustin what about you what are you making the kids read okay so yeah first thing is a couple essays and uh, this first essay is not as related as henry jenkins's um 
transmedia storytelling essay in which you're finding that stories and narratives are um, being told uh, across various types of media. So we got a video game, which whatever narrative that is. We've got film here. Um, the the sort of uh, Ur example that they use in the essay is uh, the Matrix movies because we've got also the uh, Enter the Matrix video game, and then we've got sort of web episodes. We've got the web page and all of these other ways in which the narrative is sort of being informed and you know doing other things besides and the direct to home video um, Animatrix, um, all of that stuff. Are various ways that the story is being told, and, and they they talk talk a little bit about TV and examples used of Indiana Jones. There are some comics. There is the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles TV series, those kind of things, and how there's a collaborative nature in the storytelling methodology here. And I, I think that's what we're seeing with the Super Mario Brothers. It's it they just ran off and did their own thing. The movie is not the video game, but it kind of is. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's not a perfect fit in the same way because it's not sort of uh, from front to be, front to end sort of design. Designed and uh, there's like the superintending kind of vision. It's collaborative insofar as like you do your thing, and we'll just consider it all weirdly their own individual sort of uh, hermetic canons. And so that's the first thing. And then um, Robert Stom's Dialogic of Adaptation, I think, would be another interesting essay to read. Just the idea of what do you do when you make an adaptation? As you move from one medium to another, in this case we're using a video game, which is another visual medium. But as you're doing that kind of thing, there are uh, certain rules and there are certain approaches that can be taken. And to talk about faithfulness and what that actually looks like in the case of an adaptation like this. Because this may be a pretty faithless adaptation, but it may be um, more faithful in ways than you might expect. And so I think that would be grounds for some interesting conversation. Also, play Super Mario Brothers the original, yes? Get get an NES or an NES emulator and play the the old school the original game. I actually played it a few weeks ago and I was terrible. It's a hard game. I'm I'm, I'm not reactive enough to do some of those jumps across pillars and stuff. These platforms are uh, I just slide off trouble. the other side or I misjudge the length and but it's fun. I did not get rusty. My boys got a hold of an old NES about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and uh, they pulled it out, and they were playing Mario Bros. Like, Give me a crack at that. You still got it? Uh, I beat it in 15 minutes. You speed-runned them, huh? I speed-runned nice. them. And they're like, the what? How did, what? I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's what you You doing. know the tricks. Yeah. yeah, I can get to World 4 real quick, and then it's oh, yeah, uh, I know pretty that. much over after that. You know how to use the warps and, yeah, yeah. Get, get where you need to be. Uh, I got recently introduced to the uh, the world of uh, speedruns uh, oh, in gaming. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating world, man. Yeah, there, there I used to have a friend that she, she yeah. did uh, speedrun stuff. Th- there's a... A very infamous, and I can't remember what it's called, but uh, an emulation of uh, Super Mario World, I think, that is just dialed up to 13 on the hard scale for no reason other than to be mean. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, watching people do speedruns of it is incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. People who are all real plugged in and gamed out know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. I'm sure somebody's very frustrated. I can't think of the name of this right now. Yeah, my kids watch these things, and they are big fans. And they're like, Dad, I can't... Yeah, anyway, it was cool. That's very um, cool. So, uh, yeah, I think you got to play the old school game. And and play the weird one, Super Mario Brothers 2, which nobody ever talks about. Do you ever play Mario 2? Hell yeah, I, I have. never get out of the first world. It's a weird one, man. I couldn't do it. I struggled with that. It was always just good to three. There's some interesting backstory on why that one's so different, too. That yeah, well, it was going to be a different game. And, oh, okay, they, and, and they skinned it over with Mario. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was going to be something else altogether. Like, oh, Mario did really, really well. Let's make a sequel. See, I, and I always played the original three, and I never really played Super Mario World mm. uh, as much with Yoshi and stuff like yeah. that, or Yoshi's Island. 
So I was always more tuned into one, two, and three than, mm-hmm. than any of the other things. And I had Super Mario All Stars on the Super Nintendo, which had all three, and then they had like the Lost Levels or whatever it was called. Beautiful, nice. So uh, those are my recommends, and that's how your syllabus just got longer. So I think now, guys, it is time to get down to business. It's And that business is, as always, analysis. And I'll be curious to hear what you guys have to say because me too. I, it, 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 <laughs> it's challenging, analytically speaking. Um, you know, I, I am glad that in the '90s, you know, uh, a future world was envisioned in which a despotic ruler with strange hair who lived in a tower, obsessed who, with germs, obsessed with germs, um, and his hands, um, and the destruction. And a familiar hairdo. <clears throat> This movie is prescient in some ways that are deeply fucked up, and I am including the shot of the Twin Towers at the end of this film. Oh, yes. yeah. Uh, if you didn't watch the movie, you're missing out. I'm sorry, it's hard to find. There is just a straight-up image of the, the Twin Towers destroyed mm-hmm. uh, at the end of this movie. That Turning to dirt. Just very upsetting. Yes. And very uh, not something I remembered at all. And I don't know if I have anything more to say about this, but yeah, no. King Cooper is kind of Donald Trump. I mean, there's just this yeah. weird, insane yeah, it's, parallel. There's parallels the way that uh, there's parallels between Starship Troopers and the invasion of Iraq. Yes. It's, sometimes these things happen. Well, I mean, you have one sociopathic CEO, you have a dozen. Yeah, right? I, I mean, mean, right. Look, that's where we're at. I know we can be accused of shoehorning uh, our, our ideals into the show sometimes. I'm not going to fight you on that. But look, it's it's just in the text, man. Yeah. I, I can't. You can't write this stuff. It walks like a Trump, and it talks like a Trump. It must be a Trump. They stick it Fisher must be King Cooper. They stick Fisher Stevens. Are you calling him Cooper? 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 With an A. With an A. Koopa. Yeah. They stick Fisher Stevens' head in the evolving machine, turn up the evolve on his brain, and he becomes a communist. Yes. It's just in the movie, guys. <laughs> it's just in the movie. Yeah. I don't know what you want from Free me. Free the proletariat, he says. I'm. Yeah. It's, it's a good bit. It's great. Uh, also, we didn't shout them out uh, in the, the uh, synopsis at the beginning, but man, Fisher Stevens and uh, oh, the guy that's less famous than him, Richard Edison, are so Edson are so good in this movie. They're hilarious as Spike and Iggy. They're Ignatius. Ignatius, you're right. I'm so sorry. Um, Call him by his Christian name. They're they're wild uh, and are given the responsibility of carrying a lot of the plot of this movie. Um, but yeah, we can get there with ideology. I think an interesting place to start uh, with this is uh, form, obviously, where we usually start. Can you even adapt a video game? I mean, it, I don't know that it can be done. I mean, that's the bigger question, right? And that's really yeah. what that WAPO article really dives into because, I mean, again, we talked about adaptation, what with Pet Cemetery, and what does that mean? You know, what do you have to have to have this quote-unquote faithful adaptation? Is it a, you know, shot-for-shot bringing to life of this work, or is it something that adheres more strictly to the kind of spiritual, larger, you know, uh, conceptual element of the work? And and I think with a video game, that's, as we alluded to, it's hard when you have something so simple as a bunch of essentially one-dimensional characters whose job is to just run to the end of a level collecting money and and saving the damsel in distress, Yeah, which is kind of the basis for a lot of video games for a long time. Well, or, and I think you mentioned Assassin's Creed in her article. Yeah. yeah when you, the other side of the coin is tons and tons and tons of lore yeah. that the, trying to explain any of it to an audience is just immediately going to bore them. In a video game, you can just throw a player at uh, a, a series of fun action set pieces 
and then give them lore a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, they're, you're sitting down to a 30 to 120 hour experience. You're fine getting an exposition yeah. dump every once in a while. And I think my big push here with this 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 movie as a good adaptation is I think it takes those core elements and reflects the kind of overarching uh, conceptual nature of the Super Mario Brothers, which is just saving the damsel in distress. And I mean, you've got the power ups, you, you've got the Goombas. I mean, you've got King Koopa, who is this lizard king, um, and you just try to dress it up as much as you can to stretch it into ninety minutes. Uh, hour and 40 minutes and make it work and i think it does that and in interesting ways and i mean you talk about tonal shifts but you're playing super mario brothers you, you go from world one one to world one two and i mean you're in like the underbelly did dark it, side it, of it. the mushroom kingdom yeah, you go straight to hell in the second world yeah uh hey is king koopa and bowser the same person i don't know a lot about bowser mario koopa, right i think so is bow yeah bowser koopa that, that's right, his, he's a koopa there's a whole family of koopas and bowser's the, the that, main that's, koopa that's a surname you know what uh you know what we should have mentioned on expanding the syllabus i just remember that polygon did a video about this where uh, brian david gilbert just breaks down all of the uh, armies of bowser yeah uh, into uh Air Force, Navy, and Army. Oh, that's funny. Uh, just, oh, oh, he goes through all of it, Arthur. Wowzers. Uh, it, it's insane. And we really delve into that mythology more in Super Mario 3 when we start seeing the children of Koopa, who are mm-hmm. the different little mini-bosses that you fight on your way to the, the last world. That's where we meet Iggy and Spike. Yeah. You know. I, I don't have a, a brain for the lore of uh, a Mario game. And so I think Daisy comes from 2, right? Where does she enter? Because she becomes canon later in the games. Yeah, yeah. she's much But later. I don't know if that's because of the movie or if she came in in the games. I want to say two, but I could be wrong. Maybe oh, no. it is the movie. It's Princess Toadstool in two, because she's one of the characters you can play as, because she floats. Yeah, that's Peach. Peach. That, yeah. Is Peach that Peach? Is, yeah. Pe- Peach and Princess Toadstool yeah, Luigi, are the same Peach, person. Yeah, Luigi, Peach, Toad, mm-hmm. and uh, Mario. Man, yeah, maybe Daisy doesn't show up. I think she might be like Waluigi. She doesn't show up to like way later, maybe. when they need more palette swaps for you know tennis and uh, go-karts. So you referenced the, the adaptation article earlier. Right. Where do you see this fitting as an adaptation of a video? I mean, do you think it works? I, I think it works because it is not going to be a slave to the to the narrative. I mean, there's like an experimental art movie version of this out there somewhere where Mario and Luigi keep repeating the same sort of set of feats, only slightly variations. Just Groundhog's Day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, they, and again, they keep finding out that their princess is in another castle. Like, I, I kind of want that movie. Uh, but that would be not... It would it would not do well. I mean, this movie didn't do great, but uh, it would do even worse. It would be it'd be far less successful. Um, so what they're doing with it, though, I think it's, it's fun and again, it's designed, and they they're doing cinema. I mean, again, we talked about production design uh, earlier on in special effects in this film. This is this is crushing that, and so they are definitely moving towards cinema as opposed to sort of being you know killed by the sort of roteness of uh, faithfulness. Well, and I, th- I think what you're you're getting at, Dustin, is the the thing that caused the 90s to sleep on this movie and Arthur you brought up earlier the very low rotten tomatoes score on basically all video game movies and this kind of ties into where we started this episode with the conversation about canceling things and have opinion letting opinions be set in stone right because when the culture decides that a movie's a piece of dog shit it takes about f- 40 years for people to start reevaluating it sometimes not as much in the case of speed racer it only took about 10 years i think with the internet these cycles are going to get shorter but when the culture writes a movie off, it's just a bad movie mm-hmm. until some brave idiot decides to write an article defending it. 
um, or you know, publish a book about this whole genre of films that people thought were bad. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But we get locked into thinking, well, the Super Mario Brothers movie is bad because we didn't get it in 1993. And after 30, video, 30 years of video game movies, I think it's safe to say the Super Mario Brothers movie is probably one of the best video game movies because it is, as Dustin mentioned, approaching cinema. It is trying to be its own weird piece of art. Uh, if you can call a movie like this art, and I think that's kind of the whole thesis of this show. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, yeah, you can, especially when it's this weird. Well, and when they're working on the screenplay, there was like this moment where somebody says, you know what, let's do it like Max Hedrum. And yes. Well, and then also somebody said, put more sex in it, which uh, is a thing that happened and just got left on the cutting Yeah, there were supposed to be strippers. Yeah, John Leguizama and Bob Hoskins, as we've mentioned, drunk. Also very confused by what was going on on set, which is probably why the drinking happened, because they were like, well, time to enjoy paycheck. Yep. <laughs> and some fun stunts. Um, is there anything really you think to say about uh, maybe family units in the early... I mean, the big thing here, I mean, this is really Luigi's tale more than Mario. Mm-hmm. Luigi's kind which of Which is a entry. departure, right? Because yeah. it's Mario's movie, or Mario's video game, rather. Yeah, and so we have Luigi, but we find out that he's been taken in. He was abandoned... And taken in by Mario, Mario. Uh, so I, I just didn't know. There's a lot of that kind of idea. Of the abandonment thing is very hmm. recurring throughout the film. Obviously, the same thing happens with Daisy, and that's kind of their connecting point. I think it, when they go out to dinner is this idea of not of found families and, and rebuilding families. Well, it, it goes through the trouble that uh, I, I would say most movies, video game based or not, don't even bother to go through, which is giving us a, a compelling reason that two romantic leads might be the slightest bit interested in each other at the very least it gives them something in common something like kind of cosmically in common right mm-hmm. that's sort of like serendipity that's a, a real meet cute moment um that gives us more than I, I would say anything else and yeah i think that through line the is something the film hangs a lot of emotional weight on and tries to milk a lot of uh, uh empathy from the audience just to try and get you attached to this weird material and i think going that direction is it's better than nothing, yeah. It's, and it's a very Gen X kind of value, you know, the sort of uh, the maid family, mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter who I'm related to, my family's the people I choose. And so it, it's definitely sort of playing into that friends, you know, or singles, um, you know, the, the, that kind of. Yeah, which is something that came up last week on the Captain Marvel episode when they talked about Maria Lambeau and uh, Carol Danvers and that yeah. found family unit. Well, and I, I think they, they very smartly last last week brought up uh, found family as very much uh, something that is important to queer communities and that being a huge, huge part of that. And I wouldn't go as far as to say, well, I, I think uh, a queer reading Captain Marvel is definitely right there on the surface. I don't think that's here, but I, I think there is a lot of uh, you don't 90s queer iconography. No, I don't think no. they're pumping. They're blubbing. But there yeah. is a lot of queer iconography in this film, a lot of uh, BDSM iconography in this yes. film. Just and again, that's a very 90s touch of taking subcultures and just using them to show, isn't the world wild? Isn't this different than regular life? But it's, you know, it's aesthetically an interesting choice. I, I think you could make the argument it's as problematic as it is interesting just because it's, you know, co-opting something that doesn't belong to the movie. But, uh, look, anything that makes a movie weirder, especially when it's a studio film, is something I'm usually a fan of. So I have mixed feelings on that. So let's talk about the fact that we do not have this sort of damsel in distress narrative. That this, 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 the way this movie would be made if it was being more on the faithful line is that Toadstool would do nothing, right? She would, or Daisy in this case. She would do nothing at all except for wait and pine in the castle for Mario and Luigi to show up, beat the dragon, you know, the sort of classic fairy tale 
uh, kind of telling. Um, but she's pretty proactive, and she's doing quite a bit of stuff. And uh, we've got um, Bertha's a very strong character. Bertha's the best character in this movie. Yeah, Bertha's rad. Uh, yes, she's a treat. Um, she, she forgives being stolen from when she sees Mario's fighting the cops. Which is an, <laughs> again, this movie is wild and just has some insane subtext. Yeah, uh, you're right though. The, the the Daisy kind of having her agency here. I, I did think about that. I mean, even from the get go. I mean, she she's not backing down from the uh, alluded to mafioso Scapelli. uh, the Scapellis. Uh, she's not, you know running away from danger she's going headlong into it and uh even once she is in koopa's palace she's still taking moves to uh free herself like she's not waiting around for somebody to rescue her she's getting the heck out of there no and the film hangs a lot of plot on her she's the one that you know figures out most of the connecting threads the audience is really wanting to know what the hell's going on in this this wild ride of a movie and she relays you know most of the stuff that mario and luigi learn is relayed to them by daisy um, so yeah, I, I think it's a very smart choice to give her a very proactive role in the film because it just it allows more plot economy for starters, other than just being a nice change of pace from what you expect from Western storytelling. And that, in addition, I think we have to talk about the sort of setup, n- never realized sequel when Daisy shows back yeah, up with yeah, the uh, with the grenade belt full of bullet bills and this flamethrower launcher again. That's her fire flower thing, right? Yeah. Uh, when she shows up and like we got to go back and we got this thing to do, like she is, I, I, I want that. Movie it's very back so in the much. future. It's, it's got that. We gotta go. It's such a bold choice yeah. to end this movie with a franchise declaration. This insane movie that basically begs, we're sorry we had to spend so much time in New York in this movie. Please come see this movie. Tell your friends and we'll get to show you a cooler movie. It's just a bold choice for an ending. There's even a post credit stinger. Which is uh, fun. Which is fun in 93. Um, which, uh, did you get to watch it? No, I did not. Uh, which relies on uh, Izzy and Spike. Uh selling their rights to make the super goomba cousins movie that's amazing yeah and they uh, they're met by two uh, i believe japanese investors who want to tell their story and it's a fun little that's twist insane are you serious yeah it's that's, yeah it's that's, great yeah it's that's, a fun little little beat that's wild um there also seems to be some maybe underlying judeo-christian mythology at work you've got the uh the baby who is sent you know down oh, the river yeah. very moses mm, yeah yeah plus uh koopa kind of feels like he's got this stolen dynasty israel ishmael type thing happening where he wants to get his rightful uh claim back to his you oh know, what, yeah his like inheritance the, the passed over yeah. son kind of thing yeah I don't know if there's much there to it, but... No, that, that's interesting, though. I didn't pick up on it. But. I mean, it is classical sort of mythos. And I mean, it, yeah. it's Wizard of Oz a little bit. You know, it's it's doing all those little things. And I, I think in one article, uh, they talked about how the Goombas were the best heavy since the blue flying monkeys of Wizard of Oz. Somebody and, said that at the time? Yes. That's great. See, somebody got it. Yeah. Somebody knew. And I was like, yeah, they, they, are, they are fun heavy. They're ridiculous and they're silly, but they're also strangely terrifying. And uh, I like it. I think another very standard uh, riff that we get here is the kind of a strangers in a strange land type of story. Uh, King, your colonial Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's courts, your your black knights, your first kids, whatever. I mean, whatever example yeah. you want to go with. Um, your stranger in a strange land, which is you know just the name of the trip, out of water, but also mm-hmm. the book that that comes from. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a Highland. No, it's a Highland. Uh, it's not important. Ask me. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a good go to, I think, especially when you have to introduce an insane world where there's dinosaurs and 
sentient fungi and little walking bombs. I think it's a, a a good choice on the part of the screenwriters to go. I don't know what to do with this, and say, all right, well, we got a we got a Wizard of Ozum. We got a Strangers in Strange Land. Them. Yep. I love how tiny the bombs are and so how cute. and how terrifying they are at the same time. <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I think the choice, Dustin, as you you mentioned, the uh, the flamethrower being the fire flower. Uh, we didn't really talk about this, but the production design choice to just kind of make power ups from the game be physical props. We've talked a little bit about it, but I think aesthetically, it just it just really makes the movie that much more interesting, right? And especially the the aesthetic choices they make, uh, the the like the the cars, uh, just oh, they look like uh, the cars that ate Paris. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's just weird. Every every choice that could be made, they made the weirdest version of the choice. Any of the choices on the table. I do regret that they did not figure out some sort of star power invincibility. I just I, I wanted that really missed bad. opportunity. Like yeah. it really go Technicolor and flashy. Sledgehammer was a missed opportunity too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do Do we want to talk about the communism at all? I mean, you sure? Because look again, we've already talked about Spike and Iggy getting their their brains, Ignatius getting their brains evolved and uh, becoming uh, aware of class struggle. But also, Mario's got a lot of lines about how you got to keep your tools close because they're your best friends, and they're you know the, the ways that you uh, create and generate labor is the only things that's never going to turn you down. Like, I'm not reading too much into it. It's I, just no. the movie. Yeah, it, and, it's definitely a, a labor, um, you know, Marxist kind of film. Yeah, for sure. I, I, yeah, they're both always talking about how uh, ah must have been a non-union job. Mm-hmm. Like it, this movie is full of that kind of stuff, and we spend so much like looking at subtext of films and going ah look at this interesting kind of lefty subtext in this film. That is the text of this movie, yes. and it's weird to get it from Mario Brothers if nothing else. It, uh, if anything, it only confirms people's uh, conspiracy theories about Hollywood, which is just fun. Absolutely. Look, give me something that makes uh, our universal lore that much stranger, especially when it ends with uh, prophetic imagery. Absolutely. Weird. Weird movie, guys. Well, we have any other thoughts analytically about this film? I mean, it is it is a little on the thin side, but, I mean, it is as a movie, too. I, I can't really yeah. think of anything. I mean... I, f- I feel good. Again, I feel like we had a lot of fun talking about... It feels kind of uh, like a refresher course on some like basic film stuff 101, you know, some of the basic ideas mm-hmm. and tenets of Marxism or just production and form and design. I mean, I don't know if there's anything Freudian we can pull from it to just kind of round that out. Oh, man. Well, if you had the castles uh, and the wrong princesses, like the uh, the discreet object of desire, right, mm, that you can't you get after, but that's not in this. That's a, That's more in the video game, right? Um, just know. a little on feminism with the Daisy's agency. So I, I think we've hit some of the kind yeah. of base elements of film crit. And well, let's run like. a verdict then. Gentlemen, the question being posed to you is shelf or trash with Super Mario Bros. What do you say, Dalton? I'm ready. I say shelf. It's that weird. It, it is weird enough that we have to keep watching and talking about this movie because it makes no damn sense. And again, I think is... A really great uh, starting point for the question, can you even make a video game be a movie? Is it, e- is it even possible to do? Um, yes, people have attempted, and you could argue that people have sat in theaters and watched movies. I would argue that sometimes those are not movies. I would They're just commercials for a video game. Uh, I think this, this movie is the best place to start with that question because it is the most singular adaptation of a video game I, I think ever put to screen. I can't think of one weirder. I really can't. I think the only other film that is 
technically a video game adaptation that's this weird is Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. I was thinking about that too. And I yeah. it's pretty weird. And I, I wish I, honestly, I like it. I wish I put it on the syllabus. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and re- do that retroactively because it's the only thing I can think of that's just like that is as committed as this movie is to being its own thing and trying to as you so succinctly put it Dustin, do cinema mm-hmm. to to not just put a product into theaters but to make a film that is interesting and different and if nothing else makes people uh go what the hell did i just watch so yeah put it on the shelf man all right well there you go what do you say arthur shelf or trash i can't disagree with you i i I just the pure kind of cultural artifact status of this film what it's come to represent where it comes from its lineage as as a video game film and a cycle of films that kind of spawned around the same time I mean, you talked a lot about Mortal Kombat, but I mean, we're also Double Dragons right at the same time. Street Fighter, uh, which is a big one with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Ra- uh, Raul Julia. Um, what a movie. Yeah. It's wild. Um, and, you know, I'm still thinking, I've, I've pushed a few times forward a video game uh, marathon would be a lot of fun to kind of talk about some of those from the different eras. I think this um, question, this film might prove that that's a bad idea. <laughs> I don't know. You think I, so? I, I, I We had to take our, we had to pick wisely, I think. I yeah. Think, uh, I think Resident Evil could be fun and some of those. But uh, anyway. Final Fantasy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, you know what? Just shelf it. I mean, just purely on the fact that it is fascinating, but it's also extremely hard to find. I mean, it wasn't streaming anywhere for free or rental. We had to pass around DVD copies and make it happen that way. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to shelf it. Go for it. Guys, I want to buy this movie. There you have it. I, I, I'm going to. It is going on my shelf. It's it, it's too hard to find. I'm not. I'm not just naming you know shelf or trash for the sake of the game we play on this this show. I want to own this movie. I want it to be a regular part of the rotation of my teaching. You know, I I think it is fascinating and so weird. The tomato meter is broken. Burn it. Yep. Th- there you have it. Oh yeah. Because I think this has a twenty thirteen. Some like abysmal number. Oh like yeah, it's that. real low. Oh, I'm sure it's awful. Yeah. Well, because we sometimes and it's you, retrograded. I mean, you can't yeah, retrograde exactly. movies into a tomato meter. You really shouldn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. but again, also 25 years, 26 years of perspective is sometimes necessary to figure out what a film is doing and why what it was doing is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a blast, and I'm all about it. So yeah, I'm a big fan, and I'm definitely again, I'm I'm buying this movie. And uh, looking forward to watching it again with my boys. And uh, they are going to hate it. And because they just won't get it yet, and that's okay. We'll figure it out someday. Yes. So there you go, dear listener. That's a show. We put one in the can just now. And uh, so will we have to find yet another princess? Will we have to find yet another video game? Will we find another film to watch? Oh, we found I a prince, if anything. I think we will. But uh, let me tell you real quick before we lay out the next month. If you want to contact us, get in touch, you could do that over on Twitter at good underscore trash. Shout us out. We try to share some fun news, interact with you guys, play polls. Uh, you guys just voted on making Dalton watch the entire uh, Split trilogy, nice. uh, which is going to be a good time uh, for everyone involved. I see you, Internet. I see you, and I see what you're doing to me. Hey, it was either that or Dan Brown. Uh, me and Dustin might hold that in for a rainy day. Uh, you know, I want them both. Yeah, uh, both of those would be a lot of fun. Uh, so go hit us up, good underscore trash. You can also find us on Facebook. You can send us long-form feedback if that's your jam at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, you could also, uh, if, if you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. As always, rate, review, subscribe on your listener of choice, but you could also head over to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, throw a little cash our way. We got some bonus stuff over there if you're uh, feeling obliged to do that. Um, 
it just helps us keep the lights on and uh, keep things running around here. Uh, hosting fees are pricey. Uh, so we greatly appreciate that and all of our Patreon supporters. Um, and that's that. That's where you can find us now. Who's I, our I princess? Stole, I stole his segment so he could take this one. Thanks, Arthur. Because uh, a little known fact, uh, our, our our sweet dear boy is uh, is uh, tying the knot in May. I am. And so uh, our little wedding present to him was to program a marathon. Oh, the best marathon. So, uh, Dalton, let us have it. What are we doing? Well, listeners, if you've been hanging for the show for a while, you know that Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. Uh, you heard it uh, over on uh, Kevin Avery and W. Kamau Bell's podcast. We seconded it with our Always Be Watching Denzel Marathon a couple of years ago. But since then, since we decided actor marathons were a thing that we should be doing on this show, I have been pushing for the second greatest actor of all time, period, to get his marathon, and that is the incomparable Keanu Reeves. Whoa. The truly, the truly the movie star of Generation X. The only, I'm boom, foot in the sand, like the er movie star of Gen X. He is the Clint Eastwood of his generation. He redefined masculinity. He redefined action stardom. He redefined good acting for that matter. He has an insane career, and we are going to be talking about it for five weeks. Correct. Yeah. And some of his weirdest movies. We're going to go through, much like we did with Denzel, we are going to go through the phases of Keanu's career. We're going to start in the 80s with his first big feature, River's Edge, next week. And we are going to move all the way through. Uh, We will be skipping The Matrix, obviously. We did that show, frankly, way too early in this show's run. Correct. We will be keeping John Wick uh, and its sequels in our back pocket for a rainy day. Uh, But every interesting... uh, phase of his career pre-matrix post-matrix post-wick resurgence we're going to cover them all and we are going to start with river's edge uh a little scene film that has got a lot of love uh the people that like this movie uh, love this movie best picture winner at the independent spirit awards that year so uh Mm -hmm. yeah there's a little cred a little street cred uh for the indie fans now do we want to go ahead and tease the listeners with what we've got coming for the whole marathon hey it's your it's your show baby it's your world we're just living in. hell yeah i want to do it okay so after river's edge we're going into Peak Keanu. We are leaving early Keanu and going into peak. Arthur's going to get this list pulled up for me so I don't get any wrong, but I think I know most of them. Um, so after we leave River's Edge, we are going to speed. We, we've been dying to do speed on this show for a very long time, so Dennis Hopper is going to be back here in just two weeks for speed. Um, okay, the other great Gen X movie star, Sandra Bullock, also obviously yeah. in that film. Then we are going to follow it up with what we've got in the post-Matrix oeuvre of Keanu, and that is Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly. Uh, look, when you make a billion dollars making an action trilogy, you follow it up with uh, starring in a weird indie movie where they ca- cartoon all over your face. Uh, then we are going to watch uh, some uh, pre-John Wick fare. Keanu had a weird stretch from like the late 2000s till John Wick. Uh, but during that time, he directed a movie called Man of Tai Chi starring Tiger Chin, uh, who he became very good friends with making the Matrix movies. And we are going to close it out with the post-John Wick uh, era of his career and the film Destination Wedding. Uh, to further uh, memorialize my, my nuptials, we're going to watch a movie where him and Winona Ryder are real cute together. Um, so that's what you've got in store for the next five weeks, listener. I am so goddamn excited for this marathon. Yeah, I am all about it. So that's what we're doing, guys. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.